I've been told that I make a pretty good chili. I've also been told that I make a pretty awful chili. And this assessment comes from the same people, the people I call my wife and my children. You see, when it's a good chili, it's unanimous, this is good chili. When it's bad, it's unanimous, this is awful. No amount of hot sauce can cover the multitude of sins in this pot. So why this very different response to my chili, which on one day can be spectacular and on another day can be utter dreck? Well, the reality is it's because I don't follow a recipe. I have the base elements I use, but when it comes to spicing and flavoring, it's kind of whatever is at hand. A bit of this, a bit of that. And when it's really good, my wife and kids will say to me, so dad, what recipe did you use this time? And I say, I have no idea. And then they get a little upset because they're like, we'll never have this chili again, will we? And the next time we have chili, it might be awful. Well, maybe the lesson there is don't let me go into the kitchen. And yet, when it's time for me to cook, that's how I kind of do it. So why talk about recipes and baking chili? And hopefully I'm not making anyone hungry. It's because in our lesson that Susan read for us from 1 John 5, John gives us a recipe of three simple ingredients for the life of faith. Now, I should qualify this by saying that the life of faith is a life that everyone in the world lives. Because we are all creatures of faith and belief. Every single person who has lived and is living on this world and who will live after us is a person of faith. The question, of course, is in who or what are they having faith? Where is their trust placed? Where is the object of their trust, of their desire? What are they looking for to give them answers and perspective? For some people, that's a divine being. For others, it's the universe. For others, it's myself. For others, it's whatever news pundit or social media celebrity or person that I listen to. But we are all people of faith. We are all people that we put our trust in things. Because if you even think about it on a daily basis, we have to put our trust in things. I trust that my alarm clock will go off at the right time. I trust that the dentist will clean my teeth the right way. I trust that my mechanic knows what he or she is doing when they repair my car. Our whole lives are built around trust and faith. So it's not so much a recipe for faith as much as John, for John it's a recipe of faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus has been born of God and that everyone who knows God the Father loves the Son, Jesus Christ. By this we know that we are children of God, says John. By this we know we are part of the household of faith in Jesus Christ. When we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's the commandment we all know. Love God above all else. And love your neighbor as yourself. We've heard these laws before. 
we know them, we recite them normally in our liturgy. They are a part of who, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone who puts their faith and trust and hope in him. But what about this recipe John gives us? The recipe of faith in Jesus Christ. Three simple ingredients. Water, blood, and the Holy Spirit. Water, blood, and the Holy Spirit. Water is a fairly benign thing. In fact, it's in the atmosphere around us. We breathe it in all the time. Water is the source of life. Without it, we cannot live for very long. I'm reading the book Dune. How many people have read Dune or seen the movie or the miniseries? Okay, a couple people. So, I guess I've just outed myself if I haven't already as a real big nerd. But one of the things about Dune is how precious water is because the whole story takes place on a desert planet where water is so precious that a sign of respect for someone else is to spit at them because you're sharing your moisture with them. Life is dependent upon water. And then the Holy Spirit. But we'll get more on that later. And blood. I mean, we know what happens. We can lose. I think it's, we have six pints of blood, an average adult. Is there a nurse that can correct me on that? Carol, is that about right, six pints? That's good enough. Sounds good enough. Okay, so we have on medical authority, six pints of blood is what the average adult has. And I believe we can lose up to a third to a half before dying. But by the time we get that, we've lost half of our blood, we are, we are on the way out. So blood, the life force of our body, it carries our nutrients through us and the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the things we see as water and blood, because the Spirit is what brings us into that deeper meaning of what John and Jesus are getting at. Think of that nighttime meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus the Pharisee, right at night because Nicodemus doesn't want to get caught, that he's talking to this Jesus character. He does it at night so that they can have a relatively private conversation. And Jesus and Nicodemus have this conversation, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born of water and blood. Well, anyone who's been to the birth of a child knows that the birth is imminent when the water breaks and there is a little bit of blood involved, or a lot, depending. There can be. And so Nicodemus says, are you really asking me as a grown man to be reborn by entering my mother's womb again? Of course not. That's nonsense. The idea just strikes us as ridiculous fantasy. It's not possible. None of us could do that. But Jesus says, and this is exactly what John is echoing, no, 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 no. I don't mean this in a literal way, in a way of actually climbing back into your mother's womb. I mean it in a spiritual way. To be born of water and of blood. To be born into the household of God is to be baptized. And in Easter, we pay special attention to the sacrament of baptism. Because in that sacrament, we hear, echoing the words of St. Paul, that we are baptized into Christ's death and we are baptized into Christ's resurrection. A new life comes to us when we are baptized. Now, for those who have been baptized as children, decades ago, you may be thinking, well, I don't remember any of this. But the people who witnessed it do. And the people who witnessed it bear testimony to the fact 
that we are living members of that same body, even if we may not remember our baptism. That's why the vidi aquam at the beginning, the aspersions, is to remind us, even though we might not have a living memory of our baptism, although Ian would and Vera would, because I baptized them both within the last week and three years ago, about that, something like that. It reminds us that water is that cleaning. Now, you think it's an odd bath. A baptism is an odd kind of bath. But it's more than just a physical washing. Think of Jesus washing in the disciples' feet. It's more than just getting off the actual physical dirt. It's about an inner renewal of life. In the ancient early church, baptismal fonts were usually built into the ground with steps. And on the night of the Easter vigil, those who were to be baptized would come in their street clothes... They would shed their clothing and enter into the baptismal font completely in the nude. Now, the men and the women were done separately out of sight of each other, so anyone with a little bit of a Victorian sensibility, it's okay. They would be dropped into the water, step into the water, they would be dunked three times, and on the third time coming up, they would receive a white robe, symbolizing their new life, their resurrection, the new life in the church, their new life in Christ. A new life that is made possible by that same spirit. So we have water. The water of baptism. The water that you would have heard when you came in and hear the bubbling when the font is on. The living water that is the Holy Spirit. The water that was sprinkled upon you when you came in. You are partakers of Christ's resurrection. Because he was not in the tomb, you also will be not in the tomb but raised to new life. But what of the blood? How many people have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? A few. It's a bit of a bloody movie, right? I've had that movie on my shelf for a long time, but I could never bring myself to watch it. Part of it was because it was all the controversy at the time when it first came out. And I was like, I can't bring myself to do it. Part of it is I really have a really strong allergy to most portrayals of Jesus in media. But this year I watched it for the first time. And it's a movie I will watch again because the power it had. And there's one scene after where Jesus is scourged by the Roman soldiers, probably the bloodiest scene in the movie, where Mary, his mother, is on her hands and knees with a towel trying to sop up his blood. And you watch the movie and you think, what a pointless endeavor for this woman to do to try to clean up the blood of her son. But then you think about the tenderness of a mother who has seen her son brutally tortured to the point of an inch within an inch of his life. In her sorrow, in her grief, she's trying to hold this precious blood knowing that her son is about to die, to hold on to him as much as she can. And so it is a moving scene. But the blood also reminds us of the blood of Christ, the blood shed on the cross, the blood that we in a few moments will receive. In the Passion of the Christ, they interspose the pictures quite beautifully of Jesus hanging on the cross with a picture or a scene of the Last Supper that had happened just the night before, where Jesus breaks bread and says, this is my body. He has the chalice and he says, this is my blood. And then the film goes back to Jesus on the cross. 
To be born of water is to be born through the baptismal waters. To be born of Christ's blood is to receive his blood. Why? Because the Holy Spirit makes it more than what we can just see, hear, taste, and smell. It's more than just water. It's more than just bread. It's more than just wine. Why? Because the Holy Spirit makes it into something more. The Holy Spirit makes us into something more. He makes us partakers of that heavenly body of all baptized Christians who have gone on to their heavenly reward. And we are part of that same body. We are born into that same heavenly inheritance because of the Holy Spirit. During this time of Easter, we celebrate that new life that was made possible by the gift of the Holy Spirit in that stained glass window where the angel is saying to the women who have come there to grieve, he is not here. He is risen. Check for yourselves. The body is not there. And the women leave and Paul and John, uh, Peter and John come and we know and they say, he's not here. Okay, well, what do we make of that? They themselves weren't sure until the gospel reading that we read this morning where Jesus shows up amidst them, just shows up, doesn't knock on the door. The door is locked anyway because the disciples are terrified that they've heard the rumor that Jesus is missing. What's going to happen? The Roman authorities and the temple authorities are going to come knocking on their door pretty quick to say, where'd you hide the body? But Jesus shows up. Peace. Peace. But Jesus, we're so excited. We have so many questions. Peace. Peace. As the Father has sent me to come to show you what it means to live a life with God, to show you what the new life of God's kingdom looks like through my healings, my miracles, my teachings, I am sending you now. And then Jesus breathes on them. The word for breath in Hebrew and Aramaic is ruach, and that means wind or breath. Think of those times in the scripture where we see the wind of God, the breath of God. God fashions the humans out of the ground, out of the earth, but they are not alive until God breathes into them. The valley of dry bones in Ezekiel, where Ezekiel is brought to this valley and he is asked by God, can these bones live? And Ezekiel gives a very polite answer. He doesn't say, of course not, God. Are you insane? Dead things say dead. He says, you, O Lord, alone know. And so Ezekiel is then told to prophesy to these bones and they take on muscle and sinew and tendons and flesh. But they are not alive until the breath of God fills them. During this Easter period, it lasts 50 days and it ends on the Feast of Pentecost. 50 and on that day of Pentecost, we know what happens. The breath, the wind of God fills the people. He fills it with the people because he says, now that you are members of my body, now that you are sustained by my very body and blood, my lifeblood, that is the Holy Spirit, I am sending you to continue my ministry. Jesus breathes on the disciples. He breathes on all his followers 
And he says, be filled with my life. And go into the world to tell other people that Christ is risen. See, that's our job. We receive the water. We receive the blood. We receive the Holy Spirit. We renew ourselves in this resurrected life, not just once, but every time we gather as God's people to be reminded that new life is possible through the Holy Spirit. So we see water, we see and taste bread and wine, but we know that through the Holy Spirit, God is making them these physical things and that God is making us into something more than we can ask or imagine. We are alive because Christ is alive. And although we die, we will live again because Christ, through his own resurrection, promises us that because he is alive, we too are alive this day and forevermore. Thanks be to God.